Hey, it's Freddy Cruz, and by now you know that I've made it my job to share with you the stories of the individuals, organizations, and businesses that make the greater Houston area great. And today, I'm talking to the husband-wife duo of Kareem and Veronica Muhammad, founders and operators of Tranquil Clinical Research. You are going to find them at TranquilClinicalResearch.com. During this episode, we are going to talk about the myths surrounding clinical research, why clinical research is so important to medical progress, and what it's like to run a business with your spouse. Now, if you enjoy this episode, you can always do me a favor and help me grow the show by sharing with your family and friends, as well as leaving a short review on your favorite podcast platform. Hi, I'm Ed Sheeran. This is Bruno Mars. Hey, it's Katy Perry. This is your man Flo Rida with Freddie Cruz. This is AJ Mitchell with Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Freddie Cruz. Let you go pick Mr. 305 and you already know what it is. My name is Freddie and it's time to cruise through HTX. What is the biggest myth about clinical trials that you would like to debunk? For me, Freddie, it's, I think most people have it in their mind that, you know, a clinical trial is similar to a hamster being on a wheel or, you know, the lab rat type of, you know, I'm, I'm here just for a transaction so someone can take my blood. Where really every drug that's ever been developed goes through this process and rigor of entering the human body to understand if it's safe, if it's efficacious, if it works, um, if it's futile, if it doesn't work. So I think the biggest myth is that um, clinical trials are essential and you're not just um, a human animal. Uh, And then the other part really is that it is voluntary. There is no um, mandate that anyone has to participate uh, so that I think that's it, right? Everything that we do with someone in a clinical trial is completely voluntary. Perks of living in a free country. To be fair, though, we follow the International Conference on Harmonization for Clinical Trials, good clinical practice, and that's the principle set internationally for the world. Okay, can you say that again? The International Conference on Harmonization, ICHGCP, good clinical practice. So good clinical practice is foundational for um, drug development, that we follow these principles so that we ensure the data integrity is present, that no one was put under any undue force to go into a clinical trial, that it's voluntary. When someone participates, they know what they're participating in and that it includes research and that they're going to be taking something that is experimental. So we follow these principles internationally so we can accept data from around the world. And as a layperson, to me, it's comforting to know that there are these institutions, these processes in place. That way, if I go and buy something at the drugstore or at the grocery store, that it's not just someone who was experimenting with chemicals in a garage like, I don't know, Breaking Bad, and then, (laughs) well, it's for sale in a, a nice looking bottle that I'm like, oh, well, cool. This might solve my headache. Yeah. When in fact, it'd probably just kill me. Uh, but yeah. we have these these things in place. Yeah, your headache might be gone, Freddie, but um, you're, you might lose your life in that whole process of relieving your headache. So 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I want to go back to I want to go back to something that I had learned, uh, Ronnie, about you uh, through one of my podcast clients, which is the Rosebreast Center of Excellence. And so, you and Kareem, husband and wife, uh, operating this business together. Um, but your career as an EMT sort of paved the way for for what you're doing here in 2023. So can we walk back to your early days? And then Kareem, we can uh, we can transition into how the two of you met and are now here essentially changing the game for how patients get their health care. Yeah, I um, my parents uh, ran EMS um, as a as a kid as a teenager they ran EMS and I kind of was exposed to the medical field at that point in time and um, I was around 15 and I was like okay this is kind of cool sounds exciting so I joined the junior EMS uh, in Virginia and then um, had always been interested in in medicine I kind of fell off a little bit and then ended up going to nursing school um, later on, but it was actually through when I moved to Texas that I went back again to renew my EMT and I met my husband Kareem through an EMT school here at San Jack. Um, and so 20 years later, here we are. And I got a full scholarship to University of Texas and became a nurse and been critical care nurse for over 20 years. Um, and my husband had actually, um, graduated from University of St. Thomas and went into clinical research, as well as we worked at, in the emergency room uh, here at one of the level one trauma centers and and kind of went through there. And my husband's like, oh, I could do this on my own. And so in a bedroom in our house, we started the company, Tranquil Clinical Research, which is actually named after our daughter, Sakina, which means tranquility. For me, I've always felt like medicine made sense, like the, the way the body goes through uh, disease and conditions and our approach to what we need to do to understand what's wrong and then how to treat it. it you know, our, our bodies are these complex multi-organ systems that, uh, you know, always complex my mind, but so much of it seemed kind of uh, innate and sensible. So when I, when Ronnie and I met when I was 18 as an EMT and we were both kind of driven to do something in medicine and leaving, you know, university and then working through university in a level one trauma center, I knew that this is what I wanted to do the rest of my life. When the opportunity presented to do research with the University of Texas Health Science Center, um, you know, writing clinical trials, what we call principal investigator initiated, so we wrote studies for UT. Then a company uh, recruited me to move to Virginia to develop global clinical trials. It just felt like it was the right place for me in my career. It made sense for even for myself. When I learned how drugs were developed and watching them in the emergency room, they did a lot of clinical trials on stroke. My first inclination was, why Why are we doing something so drastic to see if this works when we have other treatment modalities? And indeed, what they were doing, they were putting these patients who had stroke under these extreme cold uh, environments and reducing the body temperature, and they found that that was very effective for a stroke patient. So it, it really converted the way my mind processed information through the process of experimentation and, and learning. So for me, clinical trials really is this exploration of how to advance medicine and healthcare. Yeah, I think this was a way for us to 
collaborate together. Um, and we knew we've all, we've always known that we have been curious of, as to how to help people and not just anybody, but you know, we're a minority owned business. So there's a lot of people out there who don't understand it and the impact that them participating in clinical trials can make. And so we want to make a difference and we want to educate people and we want to we want to help people. So if we can, I mean, Tylenol would not be on the market today if it wasn't for clinical trials and uh, like drugs who treat uh, that treat sickle cell anemia, which is predominantly in African-American males um, and Hispanics. And uh, so, you know, we want to represent the data better by including these minority indigent populations, whereas they're not completely represented on the scale that they should be today. And so we want to reach out to those people to encourage them and, and let them know what a difference they can make on, you know, medical and device and you know, medication and device um, devices that can treat all kinds of dif- different um, diseases out there today. You know, you bring up a really good point about, about the underserved, the indigent, and then the minority populations not having access to, uh, to healthcare. And, there's also another element that seems it to have been sort of uh, exacerbated during COVID and that with the vaccines and justified, unjustified, whatever, um, but a certain level of mistrust in the vaccine. And so when we're talking about terms like clinical trials, research, uh, and then you all trying to debunk all of these false notions, right? Um how how are you all able to sort of break break the cycle of of mistrust in certain communities when it comes to things like this? I think the the best way, Freddie, is by building trust. Right? You can't just uh, present something to someone and never had that relationship present with them. Um, people need confidence that what you're doing is in their best interest. So when my team um, or I introduce ourselves to a new patient, the first thing we do is bridge with them that our number one job is their rights, their safety, their well-being in a clinical trial. That's our job is clinical trials, but our patient first, that their safety, their rights, and their well-being, we don't progress in a clinical trial. We do nothing in that study until we can confirm that they're they're safe, they're well, and their rights are protected. And then to further that, like in the minority communities and the underserved communities, you have to be present before you ask. So you like, it's a relationship. So before I can ask for reciprocity, I have to give. So we really do something in our communities to make sure that we're present. We do the food drives, we do the um, cleanups, we do the things that make um, our organization known that we're not just here to take from the community. We want to serve and give to the community first and foremost. And then by advancing medications and drug trials with people of color, we are now advancing medicine in a place where historically it hasn't been. Less than 1% black and brown participate in clinical trials because they haven't had the opportunity to participate in clinical trials. Ronnie, as a breast cancer survivor, this is personal for you. What about your cancer journey has helped keep you fired up, even when it might seem a little daunting or maybe you get stressed out or something? 
So when I found out I had cancer a couple years ago, it was completely an accident. Um, uh, you know, I got my mammograms every year and everything. I just had a mammogram actually that March and went in for an elective procedure. And I was like, well, I've had this mass that had been biopsied many, many years ago. Um, can you just take this, this mass in my chest out? Because it's been bothering me. And luckily, the physician was like, sure, why not? And uh, when I came for my follow-up appointment, Kramer and I were in there, and he's like, yeah, you know that benign mass that was in your chest is actually cancer. Um, and that, you know, he said, you know, if we had, he had not agreed to take that mass that I'd asked for to out, it probably would have never been found until it was too late, right? And so, um, you know, I think, you know, I think it's, my mission, I think, too, has been that, um, you know, er, yes, it's very, very important. Every woman should get their mammograms every year. I mean, I've been, I, when they first found my mass, I was in my 20s, um, and that's when they biopsied it. And here I am, 51 years old, and, you know, two years ago, they find that this is actually cancer. But, you know, mine was found on accident. So I think I my goal is to teach people to be their own advocate. And if you feel you have a gut feeling something is wrong or you feel something's not quite right, then it's best to follow your gut. And then I actually met someone else who actually does our hair and she kept saying, Ronnie, you know, um, I've had this thing in my chest too, that I was told it was fibrocystic breast disease. I said, you need to go get follow, you know, go get it followed up more. And so she did. And sure enough, she has um, stage three breast cancer and just finished some treatment. So, you know, yes, the mammograms are, you know, the gold standard along with the biopsies. But, you know, that's a little hole punch in that big mass that I had in my chest. So um, and if I hadn't gotten it, you know, taken out, it, it probably would have, you know, ended up being a more aggressive, you know, um, probably would have killed me, actually. So. Um, and, you know, in research, I think, you know, we, we are doing these cancer studies here and I think it's different when they come in, um, and they, they hear that I'm a cancer, um, survivor. And so it's not just somebody in a clinic saying, you know, we do this research, you know, um, you know, and encouraging them that it's not, you're not a guinea pig, but Hey, here's someone has been through the same journey that I'm going through. And they can understand, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes. I've been there. I've done that, you know, and I can empathize with, you know, the stress that goes on my children, the stress that goes on my husband and what we had to deal with. And we still deal with um, my six year old is having a hard time at school because she's like, you know, I miss my mommy. I don't want to go to school. It's like she's afraid to leave because she thinks something is going to happen. She actually has asked to carry a picture of me to put on her desk at school so she can still see that I'm still here. And this is two years later that it's affecting her. And I think that communication to your children um, is very, very important as well. So, you know, even now there's still these struggles and being able to have and maintain that relationship and, and be a mentor and a, a, Hold, hold hands with my patients that come in here and cry with them. And they, there's a more personal level, I think, in our company. And I mean, we have, you know, coffee with our, our patients. We've had, you know, people show us videos of their cats. Um, 
family members, even though our patients have, you know, passed away, they still come back and say, you know, my wife said that this was the best experience she's ever had and was so grateful that um, this was part of her journey. And she wasn't just stuck going into a clinic or in a, you know, a hospital bay, you know, and that this gave it a more home. Like we, she became a family that the husband and the family come back and visit us and keep in touch with us, speak to our company. And they're, you know, I mean, so there's a, a whole different level to um, not just who we are as a, on a personal level, but who we are and our, our mission as in our company as well. And our, our patients too become outreach coordinators. They go out and they're like, how can I help spread the word? And we're like, look, you can teach your community about this. Kareem was actually telling me something the other night about how um, working with the Rose and how their um, navigation team, you know, they've gone and, and um, reached out to these people who are homeless and they've gone through breast cancer surgery and they have tubes coming out of that themselves, but they're living in a tent. We need to reach these people. We need to help them. We need to let them know they have these options to get, you know, possibly free healthcare or better healthcare than they're already getting. And that there's so many resources out them out there that for them that they don't even know about. And and we want to bridge that gap. Yeah, I want to follow up on that because that's something that I had heard you and Dorothy talking about in your interview for their podcast, Let's Talk About Your Breasts. And that is in some cases they're getting they're they're getting some patients are getting better health care than they otherwise would have gotten. Uh, not just health care, period, but better health care. So can you elaborate on that? I'd like to get an answer from either either one of you or both of you. So I, I think of us as the we put the puzzles together. So, you know, typically when you go to the doctor, you have a cardiologist and you have your primary care physician and you might have your rheumatologist. So each different system of your body, you're going to 10 different doctors for. But are they communicating to each other? Because sometimes we're the, our worst historians. Right. And so we have to get all these all the medical records we have to get from all their different doctors. We have to put the puzzle pieces together. And so if you're going to the doctor and your cardiologist and they're like, well, we're going to put you on this, this and this. But you forget to tell your rheumatologist that you're on this certain medication and then they start you on another medication that may, you know, accentuate some of these um, side effects like drop your blood pressure even more or cause clotting issues that, you know, you're not putting two and two together. Well, we kind of put those puzzle pieces together because we're getting the whole story, the rest of the story. My husband likes to say that a lot here. We need to get the rest of the story because if you don't have all these pieces together, are you getting the right healthcare? Are you on the right medication? Are you on the right dose? Because the patients don't know. They don't know how to put these pieces together. You know, the doctors go in, they're focused on what you're there for they're not focused perhaps on what the whole picture is. So I think in that, that's where kind of the, the bridge to bring all that together to help them be their own advocate, keep better, better records, like keep their, their better medication lists in their wallet or you know, make sure they're keeping all the lists of their doctors, even from historical doctors, like say they moved from, like we moved from Virginia to here, well, I don't remember who my other doctor is. So we need to get those records and let's put it all together so you can be your own advocate. So we can um, 
encourage them, you know, to follow the right pathways and give them, you know, perhaps suggestions of the different resources that they can help to get the care that they, they need. And maybe they had no idea that, hey, I didn't even think about I'm having these symptoms because I'm on two different drugs that don't match. As a research center or a research unit, we're, we're not a clinic per se because we, um, we're not a prescribing clinical center. What we do is we offer clinical trials that can potentially benefit folks like folks that have cancer or that have COVID. But what we focus on is the, the wellness aspect. So for our cancer patients, when they come in and they participate in one of our clinical trials, there's no exchange of insurance or money. The trials are funded through the pharmaceutical or the biotech company that is deploying the study. We run the trial. So the patients who come in, when we're observing these folks on study and confirming they're safe and manage the, managing them through this opportunity, which so often is hope, um, which turns on this switch in someone's brain that I now have potential to you know, recover or um, allow myself to give more time because maybe this drug treatment could reduce the tumor burden. We also do things like ensure our patients are sleeping well, they're eating well, they're getting the hydration they need. So we review all systems to wellness, not just what's in your body and what comes out of your body and of bodily functions, it's how are you sleeping, Our patients go home with protein shakes. We do the IV hydration therapy that they need. And these things are not at the cost to our volunteer on study. It's at my cost. It's at Tranquil's cost so that we work towards our um, the real wellness of our patient and then hopefully have the best potential outcome in that clinical trial therapeutic regimen. Yeah, and sometimes like cancer patients, the best medication to especially when they're in end of life, when they think there's no other, they've been referred to hospice. I think as far as wellness, just the fact of having hope, that we give them hope and that quality of life that they get is worth more than anything than especially just sitting in a clinic room. Yeah, you can't put a price on that. If somebody is terminal and it could be breast cancer or whatever whatever illness, that if they're given a an expiration date for lack of a better term. And if they go and see you and they can buy themselves some more time, I mean, you really cannot put a price on that. Yeah. Fred, it's, it's, it's quite impactful because I put my office right next to our patient lobby. Um, we designed everything in tranquil is designed intentionally to the comfort and safety and the well-being of our patient. But there are days I leave here, you know, frustrated or overwhelmed And I walk out and you see someone who is smiling and they'll tell you that, you know, before joining this study, I had depression and I felt like I was dying. Now that I'm on this trial, I'm living and cancer is no longer killing me. And it's the hope that this opportunity brought someone. And then when we give them the good news that, you know what, miss, your cancer is shrinking and you have tumor response. It's not always the case, but that's when it's like this win, 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 right? You, you get to appreciate that the, the most insignificant things like a tumor reducing in size by, you know, one-tenth of an inch is significant, um, right? It gives that perspective and the power of the mind 
it, it literally is this switch. When we have a patient who you now have hope, you see the outcomes of their next day and their next visit so different than someone who comes in knowing they're dying and there isn't anything to support them or to advance their life any further. Building on that, you've got at the at the time of this recording, it is late October. And so at the beginning of November, there is some really exciting news for Tranquil Clinical Research, and that is your Healthy Human Subject Facility. So let's talk about that. So it's, uh, you know, we, we put this into works early this year to advance Tranquil, to allow us to do um, a type of study where a drug, before it goes into the sick patient, before it goes to the MS patient or the HIV patient or the COVID patient, it has to go through a healthy volunteer. The reason why we take a drug into healthy volunteers so we understand what the drug does to the human body and what the human body does to the drug. So things like half-life and toxicity and maximum tolerated dose. So Tranquil has developed a unit. These units are all overnight and confined. So when our patients volunteer, healthy volunteers volunteer, they're volunteering to take a drug. And basically, we call it... Uh, the best kind of analogy, Freddie, it's to feed and bleed. We feed someone a drug and we take their blood. So we learn what does their body do to the drug and what does the drug do to their body. And we're observing them in this very safe setting. And it, it is a transaction. Our healthy volunteers, they're getting paid to advance science. We get the opportunity to study a new drug for the first time in human in their body. So and we will be advancing with 36 beds. Again, the design is to maximize comfort, safety, well-being, and rights, where we still get to do the amazing science that we get to do. But most phase one units, if you've ever seen one, pull them up online, they kind of look like a prison ward. You have a bunch of beds stacked next to each other, almost as close as Ronnie and I are sitting, and then you just pull a curtain to sleep. And you have a pager, and it says, Hey, Mr. Mohammed, you're um, time for blood. So I don't want that transaction, especially our target population that we want to enroll is black and brown and female and the underserved and not just people who already have access to medicines and already have access to clinical trials. So we elevated our units. So when you come in, you know that these people are legit. They're going to take good care of me. I'm going to eat well. And Anything that happens on this drug study, they know how to keep me safe and well. So we go live. Um, we're under construction. Uh, it's a little uh, tedious, you know, managing business and then a construction project. But hopefully November 1, we are live with our phase one unit. If you walk in here, we have the lounge, which couches. Everybody gets their own iPad so they get to watch whatever shows they want. There's a refrigerator and snacks. Um, Cream says, you know, when people come, you know, they're getting fed. There's a warmth that we provide. We laugh, we cry with our, our patients and families. I mean, everybody becomes a family here. And I mean, people that have finished their trials or family members, I mean, they still, they always keep in touch with us and they have our cell phone numbers. And there's a much more depth to our relationship other than any other facility, you know, it's not a transaction. There's a family relationship. In other words, it's the exact polar opposite of what you were just describing a second ago, Kareem. Yeah. Yeah. Medicine and drug development. I, what we want to do is imprint on 
the right way to do drug development and attempt the approach to include people who take drugs, to include them in drug studies. And then it, like we give people the opportunity to hope. We give them, a lot of times, Freddie, we're paying people for their time and participation. So on our COPD studies, those folks are getting paid every time they come in. And these are folks who are underserved and can benefit from, you know, whatever small amount they get, but $150 per visit, that's quite significant. Um, and then our clinical team, the physicians that work along with Tranquil are phenomenal. The, the group of uh, physicians and nurse practitioners and nurses that we em- employ and deploy for our clinical trial really focus on the patient and this um, advancement of drug development and science. So many of the studies that we work on, Freddie, they fail. They're going to fail. And that's what you want. You don't want a failed treatment out on the market. But that failed experience is learned information that we then get to process and impact future science and development and drug development mostly. How long from a failure of any sort of trial, how long does it get, does it typically take to get from one to the next failure or success? So, uh, the clinical trial process is iterative. You have to go through early phase, like the phase one first in human. If yep. that drug demonstrates safety and you understand the pharmacokinetics, the amount of drug in the blood over time, then you can go on to a, a, another phase, which is phase two, where you start to learn the actual patients who might take the drug. So if it's an MS drug, then it goes from a healthy volunteer to an MS patient. And then again, we're looking to see, is it the right dose and is the drug safe? And is there any early efficacy signals? Is there any, is there a signal that this drug is working? And then from there, it goes into a much larger group of people to be studied into phase three or multiple phase threes. So a, st- a, a drug can fail in any portion um, mm-hmm. I've seen drugs fail at the early phase, obviously, because they couldn't get enough information or it wasn't safe enough. Then we've seen drugs fail where the FDA gave the pharmaceutical company the opportunity that if this drug meets safety and you prove it works, you get FDA approval and it failed. Um, a lot of times there isn't another drug candidate in line for that you know, company to run. But what they learned from is that this marker in this type of cancer, if maybe what we failed on is that we didn't target the marker correctly, or we didn't dose it correctly, or we didn't, we interrupted dosing too often for it to be, to see a signal that it's working. So that's where we learn. But um, Freddie, there, there are drugs that, you know, it could be three, four years before it gets to market in COVID, we saw something like we've never seen in our history. But then there are drugs that takes eight to 10 years before it gets to from clinical trial process to people over prescription. And some of our studies are on drugs that are already out on the market that have already been passed by the FDA. For, for example, our COPD studies, we're doing a study now that involves Botox. Well, Botox is out on the market, but it's not out on the market for this indication. So we're, our study is to show, um, hopefully, that this is going to help patients breathe better um, and have less exacerbations of their COPD. Or if you look at, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know about Viagra. Viagra was a cardiac drug, and then it was put out on the market. Well, they found that one of the side effects of Viagra was these issues with men. 
Well, now it's an approved, it has a different indication. So it's approved out on the market for a different indication. So some of these side effects that we see for these drugs and these studies can actually go on to be treating other things in addition to what they were originally intended for. So these are also studies that we do. I want to get uh, some clarification because you talked about Botox and COPD. So are you talking about Botox maybe helping alleviate or cure somebody who has COPD? So we, the founder of this modality of treatment is local. He's in Beaumont and um, he found that using Botox under this very specific modality, the way he does the injection, where he does the injection, um, he's seen improvement, significant improvement. Folks who previously couldn't walk to their mailbox because of COPD, they are now mowing their own lawn. So he wow. they brought this concept to Tranquil two years ago. We created the clinical trial protocol. We took it to the FDA, and the FDA subsequently granted us what's called an IND, an investigational new drug um, opportunity with a clinical trial protocol to study if his treatment modality is effective in alleviating COPD symptoms. So we're currently running that study in our unit. We're the only site in the world to be doing that. I've heard of Botox being good for headaches, which seems to make sense, I guess, when you think about where the injections go. So when it comes to COPD, are people getting injected with Botox elsewhere in their bodies? They are. That because we're under confidence, um, it, it's, okay. it is a public clinical trial. So you, any study that we deploy is on clinicaltrials.gov. But ultimately, the way the injections are given, it's in the back so that the therapy of the Botox, the, the treatment intent is to reduce an inflammatory marker that um, COPD patients really have a lot of and therefore reduced inflammation, which supports better breathing. Wow. That, that's just so cool. <laughs> my mind is being blown. You should have your mind blown at least five times a day. I feel like my mind has been blown more than that just in the past half hour. Well, yeah. and that's why we want to get, get out to people and try to teach them about what we do and what opportunities. I mean, like Reem said, being a lot of patients, you know, patients who need this, they get paid to, to be on study. They don't know we're right here in Webster. They can come and see us. They might not have COPD or eczema or atopic dermatitis or cancer or whatever, but they have loved ones or friends that have it. And getting that knowledge and having the community step in too with us to help, you know, reach these people that can benefit um, or contribute to give these treatments and, and devices also, um, not just medications, um, get them out there and approved to be able to give people relief of whatever they might have. You know, Freddie, when you started the conversation, it was what it was such a good pointed question on the the thought that people have about clinical trials. I my belief was that COVID was this um, bridge to support drug development, but you don't see it in everyone because there's still a lot of hesitancy that why would I participate? But you're a, someone participating in a clinical trial. They are, you know, every data point is a real person's journey in their life on that medication that contributes to the advancing of science. So when we did the monoclonal Regeneron antibody for COVID, 
we were the fastest site to be up and running for that sponsor. We were the first site to put a patient on from activation in such a short period of time. And we saw the outcomes on that monoclonal antibody. And then you saw why that, what the FDA did. They gave this emergency use because people took that voluntary approach that I want to advance treatment for COVID. I think that if we put that same mi- mindset in, why did we do it for COVID? Well, it was killing a lot of people. And we were all afraid of what it might do to us or our family. I think the same has to go in place. Like if I'm a COPD patient and I may not get benefit because the study is placebo controlled, I might get a placebo. I'm still advancing science so that someone with COPD behind me or next to me or maybe after me might benefit from what I did to participate in this study. I think that's the mindset that we need to include when we think about you know, we're benefiting humanity. That's the goal and advancing science through human involvement in trials. Yeah, we want to make sure that people are getting true evidence-based information too, like in the age of this information highway and Google. And when I found out I had cancer, I was devastated. You know, cancer sounds like a death sentence. And I mean, that's, I'm a nurse. And, you know, we always tell our patients, don't go on Google, you know, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Don't listen to it. And here I am, a nurse. And what do I do? I become an expert with Dr. Google <laughs> because <laughs> I was, I, it was crazy. Oh. I, I knew better, but I was so devastated and scared. And I didn't know it could be six months before I got into, a, you know, a cancer center, you know, and, uh, you know, your mind goes crazy. And so I had nothing else to do. So I'd started Dr. Google. <laughs> it was terrible. My husband, he actually came and was like, okay, it's been two weeks now. You got to go back to work and get off Dr. We're Google. We're cutting off so, the internet, um, Ronnie. No more yes, internet. He's like, get We're- off the internet. <laughs> Stop doing that because I just became more and more oh. and more depressed. Oh, and, no. and I knew better. Yeah. And so I think, you know, from that point, I'm like, and here I am. This is why it's important to, you know, have advocates. You know, I feel like we're advocates to you know, know the right places to pursue um, whatever you need, but also, you know, in addition to the alternatives or the contributions that you can put forth towards your your own healthcare and and those in the future or your family members as well. So don't listen to Dr. Google. <laughs> okay, so their website is tranquilclinicalresearch.com. All one word together, tranquilclinicalresearch.com. Veronica and Kareem, I want to get an answer from both of you, and you have to answer this question. Most and least favorite part about operating a business with your spouse? <laughs> I'm going to let him go first. <laughs> uh, you know, it's in, in business operations, I think um, a lot of that, the executive decisions come upon me. So the most frustrating part would be like, she may not understand some of the operational side and um, there's no bridge (laughs) there. And so it's kind of singular and lonely. So that's the worst part. It's like, I, she's like, how can I help you? And I'm like, I don't know. So <laughs> thank you. So that, that is like, but on the other sides, on a clinical side, it's great, Freddie, but the operational side of business is, is lonely. And that's, I think is the hardest part is that um, being a husband and spouse combo. And yeah, she's 
in the company, but there's certain parts that Ronnie doesn't um, know or, or do. So then that's like, so that, that is a hard thing to do. And then you take it home. Yeah, that, that is the worst part because we don't leave it, yeah. honestly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I always joke with the staff and everybody saying, okay, I've been fired 10 times this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm like, okay. Or I'll say, you know, he's not really the boss. I'm the boss. <laughs> and they all laugh. So, cause they know who the boss is. But um, yeah, I think that is, I mean, when I was a nurse in the hospital, you know, you go and you take care of your patients and you leave and you go home and you leave it at the hospital. This is our life. And um, I think, I think it is very hard because we have to try as hard as we can to, to keep our home life, you know, and have that, you know, husband and wife um, time without discussing work, you know, and so um, it's hard, you know, because we we have that bond with our, our not just our patients, but with our team here. Um, and so um, and it is hard for me to not think that I know everything. <laughs> I guess. And to, to say, okay, he's not just my husband, but he know he is the expert in this field. So, um, you know, I just, I'm glad I have a mentor and a teacher that I've learned a lot, you know, even though I've been a nurse for over 20 years, this is all, when I, when I first started doing this, we've started doing this, uh, our first study, I was like, this is hard. I mean, I've been an ICU critical care nurse and I'm like, this is nothing like that. It's hard. It's hard work, um, and it was. It's been harder than anything I've ever done in my career. So, I've learned a great deal, and I learned something new, as it should be with everybody to learn something new every single day. And um, I'm glad to be part of it. We think of Houston, and we think of the world class medical center, and rightfully so. But it's a huge town, y'all, and there's some fantastic things happening in in Webster. So let's not, let, let's remember that. Uh, it is tranquilclinicalresearch.com is the website. You want to learn more about clinical research and their new facility, the Healthy Human Subject Facility, which is fingers crossed open uh, the beginning of November. Kareem, Ronnie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank Thanks you, so Freddie. Appreciate it. Hey, it's me. I'm back with a quick little nudge. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did putting it together for you, then please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the newsletter at cruisethroughhtx.com and share with your family and friends. Thank you.